you hear that? And hello, everyone. Welcome to Haunting Live Podcast. We are on episode number 15 of season two this week. Thank you so much for joining us here and um, taking your time out to be with us here on this weekend. Hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Um, Today, though, we do have a very special guest with us. I'm honored to have a person that is deeply rooted in the occult and spiritual world, and we're going to be talking to her today about different things, uh, about what she's into and some different experiences that she's had throughout the years, and may even touch on some other things as well. So please help me welcome to the show, Michelle Blanchet. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here, Michelle. I appreciate you taking your time out of your schedule and being here for Haunting Live this week. It's an honor to have you here this week. I'm looking forward to sharing some stories and hearing what questions you all have. Yeah, definitely. I do have a few questions for you for sure. And um, hopefully you'll have some great stories and things you can share with us about your experiences as well. Um, First thing I'd like to ask you, though, in your past history, what brought you into the paranormal? Uh, Well, so what brought me into the paranormal was I was born into a family where that was sort of normal, at least psychic experience. So I... It took until, like, first grade or so for me to realize that that wasn't normal for everybody else's family. Um, I, I had a number of experiences uh, as a tiny child. Um, and I suppose I should give full disclosure. I was born with a uh, fairly severe heart defect. Um, uh, it was called a ventricular septal defect. It was only repairable with a couple of fairly dodgy surgeries, especially at the early 70s. My life expectancy was five, um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes along with that. But I know that a lot of people believe that NDEs, near-death experiences, um, and, and related things can kind of open people up a little bit more to their abilities. And I'm not sure how much of an impact mine had on me because of just my family heritage as well, uh, because my grandmother and my mother... Uh, most of her siblings, everybody talked about these, these experiences. Um, on one side, it's uh, French-Canadian. On the other side, it's Irish, um, Irish-American. And the Irish side, there's all, like, you know, fairies and banshees and the black coach and uh, black dogs and, and all kinds of neat folklore that, that came down. Um, and then on the French-Canadian side, um, a little bit less clearly described. My grandfather on that side called it just mind over matter. But, but which, whichever way I turned as a kid, like, it was okay to talk about these experiences. Yeah, so it was okay? Your family was pretty supportive of you going into the paranormal field? Um, well, there were some mixed attitudes on studying it, which, which is a weird... It's hard to explain in retrospect. Having experiences was... Ex- expected, understood. We were encouraged to, uh, you know, question things, to talk about, you know, dreams that we had, spirits perhaps we, we perceived um, just, just as a family. That was, that was fairly normal. But I'm also kind of a, kind of an egghead. Like, I like to read books. I was reading at a very early age and just learning about how I personally experienced stuff wasn't enough. Like, I wanted to read 
um, you know, every book on parapsychology and the paranormal and the occult. And when I started to get a little bit more into the scholarly aspect, uh, especially the Irish Catholic side of the family, was a little leery because they, I, and I can't explain the mindset of it's okay to experience psychic stuff. It's dangerous to study what it means. Um, so some family members were not okay with uh, the scholarly uh, approach that I took to things and, and the fact that I read widely on, you know, multiple religious traditions, uh, occult traditions around the world. Uh, I've got a degree in comparative religious studies with a concentration in psychology of religion. Uh, and so, I don't know, I guess is the best way I can say. Uh, which sent some confusing messages as a, as a preteen and a teen, to be honest. It's okay to see ghosts, but if you read a book, it might be scary. <laughs> like, it didn't make sense, but that, that's how it was. Yeah, it could be understandable for sure, people having different views on the topic, um, especially being different sides of different religions on each side of your family, it sounds like. Um, yeah. How did it go for you as you were growing up? Was it... Um, did you get into it more later on, or were you sort of heavy into it as a child? I was heavy into it pretty early on. I mean, regardless of family opinions, uh, mm -hmm. growing up in the 70s, uh, I think now it's easy to look back and try to try to say that things were as conservative, uh, like, like way back as they got to be in the 80s and the 90s with the satanic panic. But um, in the 60s and 70s, there was this blossoming of interest in parapsychology, um, ESP, uh, UFOs, Bigfoot, like all, there were a whole bunch of television shows. Um, in Search of is one that most people remember at this point, or at least know about, but there was that incredible, there was Ripley's Believe It or Not, there was Shadow Chasers, there were just uh, a whole bunch of different like documentaries and specials. So in, in some ways, it was similar to what things are like now, just instead of reality TV teams, it would be a documentary on we're going to hunt the skunk ape or uh, we're going to check out the Borley Rectory haunting. And I ate that stuff up. Um, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, if I could find a book on it um, or, or tune in on some TV station, like I was glued to it. Yeah, definitely. I remember those shows as well as the child, um, especially you know, the one was like X-Files that really drew a lot of people into the paranormal too back in the day. So um, did that have a big influence on you in what you do and how you got into it? Um, I would say that books had a bigger influence on me than television, but knowing that uh, things were mainstream enough for them to have television shows certainly helped, helped me approach all of this stuff as if, as if it were fairly normal. Um, I, I guess the, the broader thing I can say is an inquiry into psychic phenomena and the paranormal was, was normalized between, you know, the media that I grew up with as a child, uh, a lot of familial attitudes, even though some of them were a little mixed, um, and, and just access that I had even to, to teachers at school. So uh, I, I grew up in a kind of perfect circumstance to, to stretch not only my abilities as someone who's experiences this stuff, but also uh, my, my academic drive to study it. Okay, let's go with that direction bit next here. Then um, once you got into the paranormal, um, you just mentioned you studied it. So uh, what led you into wanting to drive more to learn more about it? Was there some event that happened 
after you started getting into it that led you, well, I want to learn more about this? Well, I had numerous experiences as a child. Like my first ghost, um, I didn't realize was a ghost until several years later. Um, I, I grew up in a small town out here called Hinkley, Ohio. Um, very tiny. And I was probably four um, because I had my heart surgery at four and a half. And this was before the, the final heart surgery. So probably 1975, 1976 is when this played out. Um, and I was an early reader, so my mom took me down to a little local library, and they were just putting this library in. They bought a, a private family home, and they were converting it to be the town library. Uh, it was still partly in the conversion stage, so there were different rooms that were off limits and whatnot. And my mom was friends with the librarian. I think they'd gone to um, college together. Mm-hmm. So my mom told me that I needed to avoid all of the areas that had yellow caution tape, and she proceeded to talk to her friend behind the desk, so as soon as her back was turned, of course, I went exactly where I was supposed to not go because uh, I was that kind of kid. Um, and so then I ended up uh, going upstairs, like ducking under the tape, and it was just kind of a boring hallway. There was one door that looked like it was ajar. I could see a little bit of light coming through it. So I poked my, my curious little nose in there. And at first I was very disappointed because it was an empty room, really. Like it was just, you know, there was tarp, there was some paint stuff. Um, you know, a little bit of, like, signs of construction, but there was a woman standing at the window, um, and she didn't acknowledge me at first, uh, and I, I kind of, like, stopped stunned because I didn't expect to see somebody in there, and I was kind of a shy kid, so I, I, I'm standing in the doorway that I've just opened, and I'm looking, and she's wearing this weird dress, and it's got, like, this high collar um, that is tight to her neck, uh, and her back is to me, and I can see all of these tiny little buttons. Um, they were like cloth-covered buttons with like little loops over them, um, and you know, all the way down the back. And she big puffy sleeves, just all the way to the floor. Um, it looked like white with maybe like little blue flowers or something on it, like tiny ones. And I'm, you know, bored and going, how does she button all those buttons? Like I'm just entranced by the buttons in the dress. Uh, at which point, I don't know if I made noise or something, but she turns and she looks at me. And she doesn't say anything. Um, but, like, in that eye contact, there's that sense that this is an intelligent person. And, again, I, at that age, she looks like a real person to me. Like, I have no sense that this isn't someone, you know, some other adult who's in the space. Um, and I don't know how long I, I stood there gaping at her. Uh, my mom missed me quickly enough, and she called up. Uh, and so, of course, I had that flush of guilt, and I turned and ducked out the, uh, the, the door and was like, you know, I'm, I'm coming. And I, you know, turned back in that moment where I'm standing in the only door in and out of this room, the woman was gone. Four-year-old logic, however, was that she had, that she wasn't supposed to be in the room either. And so she found a hiding spot. <coughs> now, I, I didn't have a hiding spot. I couldn't see one in that room. So I went to face the music with my mom. And I didn't think anything of it um, until several years later where folks started to talk about uh, the ghost who haunted the library. Uh, And the library was on, like, the National Registry for Haunted Locations for several years. There were a bunch of articles written about it. And people, multiple people, experienced what they called the Lady in Blue. Uh, And the description matched. Uh, The only difference is with the dress. To me, it looked like it was a white dress 
but with blue flowers on it. But I can see where it would just be a matter of people's perceptions. Um, her name was Rebecca, and she was the sister of the school teacher in the 1800s. And she died, uh, get this, an old maid of like 28 or something. Sounds interesting for sure. Like, um, do you think that she was presenting herself as an apparition to you at that time because you had abilities at that age? Um, I, I'm not sure if it was a choice for her to present herself to me. Like, it felt really like I stumbled on her. Um, and she wasn't, like, startled to see me, but she wasn't particularly engaged either. Like, she turned, she acknowledged my presence, and she went back to looking out the window. Um, if I had the word for it at the time, I would have said that her, her manner and her expression was melancholy. She seemed very sad, like she was missing someone. Um, and, and being the kind of shy kid that I was, I did not want to engage or interrupt. Uh, I wouldn't have done so if she was, you know, a human, ghost, anything. Like, I just would have gone whoop, whoops and, and, you know, silently shown my way out. Um, as I got older, uh, and I think that this is a process that everybody goes through. I, I know that for some people it's a result of being told you can't see spirits, you're not allowed to experience these things, etc. But uh, for me, uh, adapting to living in the world with these abilities, uh, I started to perceive spirits more through my mind's eye than as if they were physically in the room with me, uh, which, again, I think is adaptive. Uh, if I was Swerving my car every time I saw a ghost buggy uh, up on Euclid Avenue in Cleveland, uh, I, I would have, you know, it would, it would not be very functional. Um, and, and similarly, like, you know, just walking into spaces and seeing physically uh, mistaking the, the living and the dead. Um, generally, I do not physically perceive spirits anymore. It's a very rare occurrence when I do. And usually, unusual circumstances. Either something atypical about the spirit themselves or the location. Um, probably the most confusing city for me is uh, the French Quarter in New Orleans, where mm. something about space makes uh, spirits are just much more tangible there. And I, I, I don't know if it's you know the, the history woven into the space, the age of it. I've, I've not been to most of Europe, uh, so I don't have a really good you know, basis of comparison for the age of buildings, you know, whether or not that's a factor. But um, either way, uh, I, I definitely grew up with multiple experiences. And as I got older, what I wanted to study was how other people perceived these things and then if other people perceived them and under what circumstances and how much of a role did human psychology play into that. And it, it might seem... Uh, like that question about psychology is, is very early, but my, my great aunt who lived with us was a social worker, and uh, there were a bunch of books by you know, Freud and Jung and Otto Rank and, and tons of other folks that she was studying for her master's and PhD. Uh, and so we, we also had conversations about that as much as we had conversations about psychic abilities in my family, so the, the psychological aspect of things and how our perceptions influence things, how our psychology itself influence the way we interpret perceptions like all of that I, I just I needed to know that's good that there was those sources out there for you when you were wanting to get into the topic and studying it more um, so would you say that's more along lines of like parapsychology that you want to get into or uh, yeah at the time that was the word for it um, 
for it. Uh, and those were the most available books. Like, I got the books um, either by or about the Rhine Institute. Uh, I forget at what age I found um, the works of Lloyd Auerbach, who I was later able to, like, actually meet as a peer and have good conversations with. Uh, but I read widely and not limited only to parapsychology. Uh, so, so in addition to that, all of the writings about psychicism, energy work, the spiritualist movement, uh, I'm, I'm a very interdisciplinary reader. Uh, and so at the same time that I was reading books on parapsychology, psychic phenomena, and ghost stories, I was also reading history uh, about like social movements that had influenced different beliefs, uh, different kind of eras uh, among humanity for like when we were more likely to believe in these. I was especially fascinated with the spiritualist movement um, as it grew and impacted both uh, America and the UK, um, Society for Psychical Research, uh, all of it. Yeah, sounds like you had a wide range of topics that, that you were interested in studying, for sure, that led you sort of to where you are nowadays as more of an occult expert, as they say. And um, that's sort of where I want to lead to next is, um, what area specifically of the occult did you get into at that time? Did those books allow you to sort of get into that topic more deeper? Did they allow you to sort of broaden your knowledge of the subject more? Well, yeah, and also speak to that sort of interdisciplinary nature of, of the way that I like to approach topics. You know, on one hand, we had parapsychology and psychic experiences and people perceiving spirits, and then in these occult manuals uh, and in witchcraft and the rest of it, you have people who are actively working with spirits, which sort of presumes the ability to perceive them in the first place. And, you know, I saw it as kind of all of a piece, like all connected, where, where these different disciplines are talking about um, you know, different approaches to similar things. Interesting. 
mean, at, at that time, they were, they were very, very separate. Like, they didn't find um, a psychic who was really willing to go delving into uh, ceremonial magic and, uh, like, look at that perspective of spirits and spirit perception, um, because one was seen as, as evil and satanic, and the other one was just, I don't know, love and light and um, possible sunshiny hugs from your dead loved ones. Like, it was, but, but the thing was, is like looking at them, the nuts and bolts of the experiences people were talking about in them, if you take the trappings away, it's the same stuff. Uh, and, and so that's really what got me digging, was to see these are just different systems that give different tools and different approaches to essentially the same thing, which is humanity's ability to perceive more than the physical world, interact with, influence, or be influenced by more than the physical world. So there are different modalities for approaching that. Uh, religion was another one. And um, you know, at the same time, I was digging into all of that, studying world religions and comparing their approaches and beliefs became uh, a pretty important drive as well. So the balance of all of that. Yeah, it is a balance for sure, I think, too, when you're getting involved into the spiritual realm of any area, whether it's paranormal investigating or it's uh, spiritual research or communicating at all. I think there's a different level each time. Um, and a lot of them do have similarities, like there is different ways of doing things, but um, you're all basically doing things the same way, really. Certainly, everybody's looking at the same phenomenon. And I've seen a lot of recent work where there's a lot more of that interdisciplinary approach. Um, some of the work that like Greg and Dana Newkirk have been doing uh, with Hellier and just sort of like their phenomena where they're looking not only at psychic stuff, but they're also looking into cryptids and UFOs and, and Bigfoot and kind of like asking like, where do these things intersect? Are we maybe looking at the same thing under different terms and, and different names? Um, and, and watching in um, the, the witchcraft community, like with Matt Aron's book, Psychic Witch, where, you know, very firmly marrying both the approach of witchcraft to uh, practicing and harnessing the will to influence reality, but also acknowledging that there's a significant amount of, of psychic ability and psychic perception uh, and development that are necessary for being able to, to practice that path. So it's, it's, been, it's been neat kind of having this, journey of decades, uh, starting in the 70s, and, you know, living through the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, where uh, a lot of it was really looked down on as dangerous and dark and automatically satanic. Um, and then now, uh, as we've gotten through the aughts and tens, and now we're firmly in the, the 2020s, we're in this much more open-minded space, at least among the aspect of our culture where we are still seeking these things. Like, much like uh, the Victorian age, uh, the, the mainstream culture remains a little bit uh, rigid in, in its outlook. Yeah, definitely things are progressing in a more positive way, I think, for uh, the paranormal and the spiritual realm altogether. Um, I just want to go back to that moment that you're just talking about, about things being the same on different levels. Um, I was listening to another show a while ago, they talked about the same topic, and they're relating how even things like UFO experiences and things like Bigfoot, like you're saying, Sasquatch experiences, 
are related to things in the paranormal field the same way. Like they have a lot of the same elements to them. Um, they have a lot of the same things happen in experiences when people have them. So I wonder if there is a correlation between spiritual realm and different things like cryptids too. There are two books that I read years ago that were influential for me with that. And one is Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia. And, and the other one is Patrick Harper's Daimonic Reality. And it's spelled D-A-I-M-O-N-I-C, like the Greek uh, root for demon. So not like, ooh, scary demon. More um, uh, entities or concepts that are a little bit above and beyond humanity. And in both of them, both of those books present the idea that, that A, um, the human mind is a lot more influenced on reality as we experience it than, than I think most of us are willing or comfortable giving ourselves credit for. So they, they address on one hand how some of these experiences are really projections. Um, uh, thought forms of the words sometimes get tossed around in uh, the witchcraft or the occult community. Uh, tulpas uh, also, but that's problematic because it's kind of imperfectly borrowed from the Tibetan Buddhist system. Uh, but on one hand, the idea that some of the phenomena are things that we are shaping with our own perceptions and beliefs. But then the other side of that is that there's that there are lack of a better term, uh, energies, entities, things that present themselves to us through different different methods. Uh, so in, in Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia, he raises a really fascinating parallel between modern reports of alien abductions, crop circles, and even the appearance of, of numerous aliens, and compares it to the fairy face of the Celtic countries. And there are some really intriguing points, uh, up to and including concepts of changeling, concepts of missing time, abductions, where people are carried away to the fairy realm for various purposes, and they come back, and time has jumped or shifted around them. Um, we call them crop circles, but there was a, a wide belief that there were places that fairies would dance in farmers' fields, and you could tell because they would leave these big circular spaces where they had danced. And so if you look at it, they're talking about crop circles just under a different term and a different explanation. Uh, and he even made a point of like comparing several of the reports of, of various you know, classic UFO encounters with supposed aliens and you've got these diminutive figures. They've got like these big almond-shaped eyes. Uh, some of them have been described literally as goblins. And again, point for point, there's all of these parallels. And rather than saying that you know every alien encounter is actually a fairy encounter or vice versa, what he proposed is that we're looking at the same thing through different lenses based on the beliefs and the perceptions of the time period when the experiences happen. Um, and I, I am thrilled to see a lot of folks starting to like really dig into that idea, that there's a phenomenon, that there's definitely something there, um, that it may be less physical than I think some people might be comfortable with. Because uh, I know in the 70s, I had an uncle who was in the, the, the Air Force, the Vietnam vet, and I mean, he believed in UFOs as actual physical craft. Um, we, 
sky watching and point out what was an airplane and what was questionable. Um, and opening the possibility that some of these cryptids, uh, Sasquatch, UFOs, whatnot, that maybe not everything is physical in the way we understand it. And again, Jacques Vallée and, and, and uh, Patrick Harper were kind of on the cutting edge of that. I've been delighted to see their books come back to, uh, to use some of their ideas. Yeah, for Three, sure. Yeah, for sure. They sound like they have a lot of input and study into the topic there as well. Um, what's your belief on it? What's your belief on the whole manifestation end of things? Do you believe that it's something that our mind is projecting outwards, or are they manifesting out of something else? Or what's your personal belief on that? I think it's. I think that there's a combination of things going on. Um, I think that there are some non-physical energetic or, or spiritual uh, things that are being perceived and interpreted as if they were physical. In the same way that I had that first ghost experience and because I had no context and no framework for seeing a person in a room as anything other than a living being, uh, I interpreted her exactly as such. You know, there's a, there's a person in the room, therefore she must be a living being. And I didn't look past that to analyze the experience. So I think that there are some experiences that people interpret as physical because they have no other context. I do think that there is a possibility for some cryptids to be actual physical things. Uh, and I'm not willing or entirely comfortable ruling out uh, the idea of physical craft and physical aliens. Um, if, if for no other reason than I think it's, it's incredibly presumptuous of us to uh, declare that we are the only living uh, advanced beings in the, you know, millennia, the galaxies, like everything. Like, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, whether or not they can make it here is, is another question. Um, so I guess my answer is uh, D, all of the above. Um, are, are some of these things physical? Yes, I think so. Are some of them spiritual? Yes, I think so. Are some of them psychic projections of what people think they are experiencing? You just have to go to uh, the reports of Splendor Man at, at this point to realize that sometimes what people believe starts to be what they also experience. Well, that's a good point that you just brought up because... Um... Slender Man has been more of a recent phenomenon. It's not a historical phenomenon. Um, oh, yeah. I think it's something that's brought up more recently. I think it's more of a 20th century type apparition that people are seeing. Uh, but that only started because of a internet thing. So it's only been around since internet times. And um, is it because that people have that in their mind that they're projecting that outwards and making it something into manifesting itself? Is that what we're doing? Man, I would even argue um, uh, black-eyed children. There's a number of things that did not exist until they started to exist on the internet. And somebody was like, in the case of Slender Man, it was intentionally created. Like, this was uh, a creepy pasta. This was a story. It was a fabricated urban legend. Um, and that specific instance shows us how easily we can create experiences. We can project something by, by giving it a, a shape and a story. You kind of, you effectively make a container 
for uh, the people's energy, the people's ex expectations. Uh, I've mentioned a thought form uh, before in, in uh, ceremony. Imagine witchcraft. There is the idea of a created entity uh, that you can consciously shape energy into a kind of psychic AI. Uh, some of them are very simple and, and limited, and there are some that can be so complex that they take on a life of their own. Um, I think one of the first places that I really run into the idea of egregores and thought forms was, uh, of all places in the, um, the letters of W.B. Yeats was long gone. Um, Yeats was uh, a poet, Irish poet. Um, everybody knows this poem. Um, it's quoted over and over again. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center kind of cold. Um, it says, you know, uh, somewhere in the desert, some rough beast slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. It's the second coming. Uh, it, it's pretty much everybody's favorite apocalypse poem. Um, but Yeats, in addition to being um, a national treasure of Ireland for his poetry, was also uh, a channeler, uh, a spirit medium, a practitioner of ceremonial magic, uh, very heavily involved in the, the magical and occult revival in Victorian England. Uh, had connections with the Golden Dawn and a couple of other groups, was, was in charge of things, uh, and in, in later years uh, worked with his wife who channeled uh, stuff. Like, like he's deeply involved in, in magic and the occult. And he was also uh, a bit of a, an Irish rebel, and he worked with uh, Mongon, who he had a, a flame for for, for many, many years, um, and one of the things that he proposed to her in their letters was to go to the ancient, sorry, the ancient sacred sites in Ireland and consciously create a thought form, like the spirit of the land itself, uh, to summon this to throw off the shackles of English rule. Uh, so he was basically proposing magic and creating a kind of, uh, I don't know, Ireland embodied, but doing it through intentional crafting of the spirit. Uh, Maud had other ideas of how to throw off the shackles of English rule, and most of them were a little bit more violent than, uh, and, and physical than, than what Yates had proposed. Uh, but, I mean, Yates is from that, that time period, that group of folks that also gave rise to the practitioners during World War II who were similarly using thought forms and magic to try to keep the Germans off of uh, the soil of the British Kingdom. Yeah, it sounds like they've been trying this attempt throughout history as well, from what you're describing. Um, how has that changed from the old days? Do they do you find that people are still trying that these days to uh, project their thoughts outwards and make things happen for them? I mean, there's, there's a lot of different techniques for doing it, and I think it just the difference only is in what system you choose to use. Uh, the big change would be the internet. Uh, creating something on the internet and having multiple people engage with it, perceive it, uh, add their belief to it. Uh, if we are going off of the principles of how you create a thought form, uh, at least in ceremonial magic or, or any of the other uh, more traditional magics, uh, the more people who engage with it, 
and put a little bit of belief and energy into it, uh, the, the stronger it becomes, the more real it becomes. And it doesn't necessarily matter if those people realize if it's real or not. And in fact, it is better if they engage wholeheartedly with it, which if you think about how the Internet works, and again, Slenderman is an excellent example of this, we have this perfect circumstance to basically create a meme. And if it goes viral, the more people who engage with it, if we believe in these principles of, of how to create experiences, how to create thought forms, you can basically crowdsource a thought form using the Internet. Uh, and so the, what's changed is, is how you do it, um, how you access it, how many people you have access to, um, you know, how you sustain that. Uh, and kind of at this point, the possibilities are, are limitless. Yeah, I think that's you're correct on that point that that the method is the same, but just the format or how you carry it out has changed. Um, like in the old days, you'd have to talk to people and pass it on by word of mouth, but nowadays you could just do a post on Facebook and have it hit like, I don't know, like 2,000 people in a post or whatever, and you're done. So um, do you think things are moving faster these days? Do you, I've been talking to some people in the past who've had guests on, and they talk about um, us reaching a higher ascension level and things being happening faster and faster. Do you believe in that as well? Well, in the 80s, I certainly ran into a number of folks who had a strong belief that, uh, you know, we were moving toward this sort of dimensional shift. There's like some sort of changing in vibrational frequencies. It seemed to be sort of a variation on the idea of like the, the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And I'm, I'm of two minds with it. Uh, I definitely see that we are in a renaissance of belief and of experience and the internet helps to drive some of that i think where we are in an unprecedented uh, speed and quantity of communication and language and thought and myth and media are all things that behave like viruses in the sense that the more they are exposed to people the faster they change and evolve, and the more little like mutations you get with ideas and, and creativity. When you apply that to uh, the paranormal, the belief in general, uh, it's, it's no wonder that we're at a time period where there are so many different ideas proliferating, and people have so much more access uh, to consider different points of view. Um, so on one hand, I do think that there are cyclical shifts in the general energy of uh, the world, our environment, whatever you want to call it. Um, think of them as like a, a, a great cycle of seasons on a, on a more cosmic level. And sometimes it's psychic winter, and sometimes it's psychic summer. And by my personal beliefs, we're, we're coming out of winter now, and that's when things are a little bit more possible, you know, like the, the, the dulling blanket of, of cold hibernation has, is starting to melt, and, and more things pop up, and more possibilities open up for growth and for change. Um, and 
time, we're in this fantastic, exciting, and, and potentially dangerous point of unprecedented global communication. And I say dangerous only because we haven't quite figured out what the limits should be or how to hold healthy boundaries um, or, or how to protect one another and ourselves from anyone who might want to take advantage of um, all of the different ways in which we communicate. And that you see with like disinformation and, and just trolls on the internet. Like you can see that these are things that can be used powerfully for good and for creative means and trolls and, and you know, the, the disinformation campaigns and whatnot show us how easily it can also be turned uh, bad. Mm. Yeah, definitely true. There's two sides to everything, I guess, and uh, um, I guess there's two sides to that as well. So um, thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate you taking your time out of your schedule to help us out on the podcast this week, and it's been an honor having you uh, talk a little bit about what you do and um, some experiences that you had. Um, just before we let you go, though, today, is there something else that you'd like to share with us, say, like one other experience that you had that really stood out to you as being paranormal? I mean, I've had so many. Mm -hmm. um, actually, you know, I'm going to talk about, uh, I, I've been doing this connection ritual, which is uh, a guided meditation I lead folks uh, mm -hmm. through uh, every Saturday, and I started doing it during lockdown. And my intention with it was to help guide people to sort of perceive the way I experience energy and psychic connection. Um, when COVID happened uh, back in March of last year, and folks got put on the lockdown and I had so many friends who were just miserable like they were you know one person in an apartment it was like them and their cat and like no contact and they started to languish very quickly like just having no ability to like go out and about and, and connect and so this this connection ritual harnesses the, the concept um, in witchcraft magic uh, a number of other systems, there's something called an astral temple. And, and that's a, a fancier, probably, than the necessary term for an energetic reality, a psychic reality, where we can engage beyond where our physical bodies are, where it is powered by will and mind and desire. Uh, and it is both shaped with imagination, but also real in a certain way that definitely like has an impact on people. So uh, I started this as just a way to help people get out of their own heads and get out of their physical bodies so they could feel a connection with someone regardless of where they were at. Now the paranormal aspect of it is um, something that I've learned as true um, in my life engaging with all of this and teaching people and interacting with people is when you have an experience, like the more you engage with this stuff, the more you have a genuine connection to uh, either interacting with a spirit or having a psychic experience with a person, like the more, the more it opens up in you. And not in a bad way. I don't mean like opening a gateway that you know you can't ever close again in a dangerous way. But like having the experience, tasting it, you get a sense for what genuine paranormal experience feels like. So the side effect of doing this connection ritual for over a year at this point has been the slow and sometimes actually rather rapid blossoming of psychic development of all of the people participating in it. The 
in engaging consciously with one another over a distance, like learning to do remote work, learning to go inside, leave your body kind of to the side for a little bit and stretch your mind and your spirit across the miles and to meet in that shared space has inspired so many people to write like where they've had experiences with dead loved ones, uh, pets that they recently lost. But, but being in that space and being guided there and supported there by, by like a whole experienced group gave them access to a level of perception they hadn't originally thought possible for themselves and, and that they were then able to much more safely explore. So I, that's been, that's been pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds like it's a great way for people to um, sort of connect with spirit at this time, especially during this time of lockdown and stuff. I know, um, well, I'm not sure if you know, but up here in Canada, we're in lockdown again in Ontario, so we're down for another four weeks. So I'm sure that people are experiencing that on a different level again. This is like our third time. And um, what would you say to people that maybe are experiencing things for the first time, like a lot of people are at home for a long periods of time that they're not used to. Um, they may be experiencing things on a spiritual level that they're not aware of what's happening. Um, well, any suggestions for people what they can do for that? I mean, my first suggestion is always try not to be afraid. Like don't react initially with fear. React, if you can, with curiosity. Uh, most things, spirits and, and whatnot that, that do engage with us are not doing so for, for nefarious means. Uh, so be curious, ask questions, but also hold your boundaries. Like, be aware of where your comfort levels are. So even if uh, a spirit, for example, is reaching out to try to communicate with you, and you know that they mean well, if it's still uncomfortable for you, you need to communicate that. And you need to set where your limits are. You need to be very honest about those limits. Um, it's just, it's not a good experience if you are operating outside of your comfort zones all the time. Uh, the other thing, there are two other things that I suggest. You know, read as much as you can, as widely as you can, and also question all of it. Every single writer, me included, uh, because everybody who has a perspective whether it's on psychic development or the paranormal or magic, everybody has their own lens through which they are interpreting their beliefs and their experiences. And sometimes those lenses have flaws in them. Actually, everybody's lens has at least one flaw. And we need to engage consciously and uh, intelligently in order to see where those flaws may mislead a person uh, so we can decide for ourselves how much of their beliefs we're willing to accept and, and want to kind of put into our, our own toolkit. And the other thing, find a few people, at least one other person, even if it's just a long-distance friend on the Internet, who you trust to kind of go with you on this journey. Not necessarily a guru, not necessarily a teacher, but a co-student. Uh, they don't have to believe the same thing that you believe. They don't have to be, uh, they don't have to have exactly the same set of skills. They just have to be willing to talk with you about their experiences and willing to hear you talk about your experiences and give honest feedback. 
Um, and, and ideally someone who's willing to also call you on the bullshit. Uh, so like if you're freaking out about something and it's really just your anxiety, this is somebody you can trust to gently remind you that maybe it could just be anxiety and not, not a premonition that you're going to crash your car. Uh, so read a lot, do a lot of self-work on your boundaries and your comfort zones, and have a couple of buddies with you along on the path. No, that's great advice. It's always good to have somebody for support to fall back on in any situation. And um, especially if you're going through issues such as uh, something that you're not sure about, you got anxiety about something like paranormal experiences, it's always good to have somebody to talk to. Um, but just want to be, before we go here, Michelle, um, thank you again for being here. Um, everybody knows you, of course, from the TV show Paranormal State. Uh, can you tell us quickly how you got involved in that? Just how that show developed for you? Um, so, Elfie Music and Josh Light were fans of my book, and they'd reached out initially to have me as a researcher um, behind the scenes for Paranormal Space. Uh, there was actually a, a blog tied in called the Paranormal Insider. So, the first season, I, I wasn't on as, as a psychic at all. I was behind the scenes writing articles, doing research, um, occasionally being on call when they were on a case. Uh, I have a, have a library of about, well, at the time, it was probably like 2,000, 3,000 uh, different books on magic, the occult, folklore, like, you know, kind of all over the place. And uh, if they ran up against something, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Supernatural, but, um, you know, the role that Bobby plays in Supernatural, yes. where they, like, call him up and, like, hey, Bobby's got the big book of, of weird, like, check things out. Or um, I, I prefer Giles, personally, just with Spike's fashion sense. Um, and there was an episode where they brought me out, uh, the concept initially was to be the occult researcher mentor to Elfie, uh, who they felt was a little shy on camera, and they were hoping that having, uh, somebody kind of along with her to, like, help break her out of her shell. I mean, what they didn't take into account with Elfie is, like, she was also going through a lot of, like, pretty serious personal loss at that time, like, she had... Um, her brother and her father died in, in rapid succession while also being, you know, sort of thrust into the limelight uh, in this sort of unexpected hit. Like, it was like 3.5 million viewers at one point. Oh, wow. Really, it was a lot. Like, it was really a lot to, to kind of go from just being college students to that. Um, that particular episode had Chip Coffee, and uh, through a circumstance, through a series of very interesting events, uh, Chip ended up suggesting that we both do a psychic walkthrough in the location, separate from one another, and then have the, the crew compare what we picked up. Uh, and it was brilliant. It was really fun and, and fantastic. And of course, the, the production company was like, you didn't say you were psychic. And I'm like, I've written books on psychic <laughs> development. I've been teaching psychic development for like 20 years now. Like, at what point should I, like, you know, hold up a sign and say, hey, I do this stuff, too. Like, you can just Google me. Um, but, you know, that, that aside, um, after that, I became not the occult researcher, but the psychic. Uh, and so when Chip wasn't on a case, it was usually me. And I became really, really good friends. I'm still friends with almost everybody from, from that crew. Uh, they obviously, like, still work with Katrina on Portals to Hell with Jack Osborne. Uh, I work closely with Elfie, uh, Josh, and I still stay in contact. Um, Patty, 
That's amazing. It's wonderful that you guys can uh, stay close after a production like that and still be friends and work together afterwards. That's amazing. Well, thank you, Michelle, so much for being here on Haunting Live Podcast. I appreciate all the info. It was amazing to have you here and talk about your history and your experiences and also what you do as an occult expert in the paranormal. Uh, a really great uh, insight, I think, to our listeners here today. Thank you for having me. It was lovely. Yes, thank you so much. And that was Michelle Boulanger, from, uh, well-known from the TV show Paranormal State. And we uh, welcome her as a occult expert here on Haunting Live Podcast to talk about a variety of different topics as you witnessed here today. And I hope you guys learned a lot about uh, different areas that she was involved in within the occult field and paranormal field. And amazing stories that she had as well. So, uh, great thank you to Michelle for being here and taking time out for being our guest on this episode of Haunting Live Podcast. So just before we go today, guys, I do have a few things to talk about as usual before we end the show. Uh, first things first, uh, Chris here at Haunting Life Podcast is expanding his um, spiritual messages from the other side readings, from angel readings. Um, he's doing them the usual Wednesday nights at 8.30, but he's also now doing them on Saturdays at 3 o'clock. So you can catch him two nights a week right here on Haunting Life Podcast Facebook page. If you have any questions for your angels, you want some answers during these troubling times, uh, feel free to come on either Wednesday nights or Saturday afternoons and uh, get your answers answered, answers answered by uh, your angels and Chris here at Haunted Light Podcast. So he'll pass on any messages from your angels for you. And uh, second thing is um, Ghost of the Queens tickets. Uh, our event in Stratford, Ontario is still on schedule. We're going to be holding a public event come Halloween weekend, which is October 29th and 30th this year. And it's going to be at the Queens Inn in Stratford. It's a two-day event. Uh, tickets are 140 for both the both days of the event. So you get the dinner Friday night. You get the talk on Friday night with us and a special guest speaker as well. And that speaker is Mary Ann Kennedy. She's going to be talking about what she does on her show and some other things. And she's also going to be holding a workshop that you can take part in on Saturday, as well as Sally, our friend at Queen of Ooga Booga on YouTube. And Chris will also be doing workshops on Saturday that weekend. So great event. You guys come and check out in Stratford, Ontario. Tickets are available on our website at hauntedipodcast.com slash events. So go check that out. And also, just a quick mention, our merch store, I changed the banner here on the uh, podcast to include our merch, so you guys can check out our merch section on our website. We have a bunch of great items up there for sale, stuff we use in the field all the time, like smudging materials and other items. Uh, we have crystals for sale, we have crystal jewelry for sale now, we have earrings and sets and uh, necklaces and stuff like that. So you can go check that out. You can check out uh, pendulums and stuff too if you want to purchase any items from us in the paranormal field uh, that we use out in the field. So sounds great. So thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. It is episode number 15 on season two already. We have a lot more guests lined up uh, for you coming each and every week right here on Haunted Live Podcast. If you would like to be here on Haunted Live, just send us an email and uh, we can definitely schedule you in and have you as a guest here as well. Uh, with that, guys, have a great weekend. Uh, thank you again to Michelle Boulanger of Paranormal State. Uh, she was talking about her life as the, an occult expert and what she does in the field. It was great to learn things about her and uh, what she does. So thank you to her for being the guest this week. And we will see you guys right back here next week for Haunting Live Podcast. Take care.
Did you hear that? 